Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There are, refreshingly, a good number of women in in senior positions across the community. So it's not that every time you walk into a room you feel like you're the only woman there. That's not to say there's still not more for us to do within the community, whether it's gender diversity or diversity more generally. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. Today, we're bringing you the first episode of the Women in National Security mini-series, produced in collaboration with Accenture. Our hosts Gabe Brotman and Meg Tapia are joined by the Deputy Director General of the Office of National Intelligence, Nina Davidson. They explore the myths around the national security domain, the national intelligence issues and trends on Nina's radar, and her career journey up until now. Let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to this first episode of Women in National Security. I'm your host, Gay Brotman, and I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. And I'm your host, Meg Tapia. Gay and I have a passion for diversity, inclusion, and in particular, the incredible roles that women play in our national security landscape. We're talking to some exceptional women this year who inspire and empower us. And I hope that through these conversations, we can inspire and empower you. And today, we're kicking off the series with a very special first guest. Nina Davidson, who's Deputy Director General Intelligence of the Office of National Intelligence. Welcome, Nina. Thank you, Gay and Meg. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So particularly for our first, it's very, very special. So thank you for joining us. Now, Nina, can you start by telling us a bit about your role with the Office of National Intelligence and a bit about the organisation itself? How does the Office of National Intelligence fit into Australia's national security community And what does the Deputy Director General Intelligence do? Sure, Gay. Look, where I'll start is to talk a bit about what ONI is as an agency and the role it plays in the national security community. And ONI is the Prime Minister's principal advisory agency on intelligence priorities and resource allocation in the, across the national intelligence community. The national intelligence community comprises 10 agencies of which ONI is one. Another element of ONI's role in respect of the community is evaluating the performance of the NIC as a community in meeting the government's um, priorities and working collaboratively within the organisation and across the community to develop strategy, develop joint capabilities for the national intelligence community. We connect in, of course, to the broader national security community because we're working closely with colleagues and seeking to serve the policy objectives of the government and colleagues from across the community. So foreign affairs, defence, home affairs, prime minister and cabinet, all sort of comprising the national security community and other agencies as well. 
Another dimension of ONI's role, we have assessment teams and those assessment teams providing all source intelligence assessments to provide insight to government to inform government decision making. And another of ONI's functions is about open source intelligence. Mm. So collection, trade craft, you know, really being the centre of excellence around open source intelligence and serving the broader community. So in my role as Deputy Director General Intelligence, I effectively support the Director General National Intelligence across all of those functions. So mm. I have a role and interest across all of those functions. And of course, uh, part of my role is also supporting the Director General in his management and leadership of ONI as an organisation. And that, you know, aspects of that role just involve a lot of, and which is something that I, I really enjoy and it, it sort of attracted me to the role, is working with colleagues from across the broad and diverse community that we're part of. Yeah, because it is a diverse community. So I, it is. Yeah, very yeah. different um, colleagues from different backgrounds. Yes, yes. And yes, agencies. Absolutely. Mm. I'd like to go back to your early career if we can, because I can't imagine that when you were at university, you thought to yourself, right, this is where I want to end up. I want to be Deputy Director General of <laughs> Intelligence at ONI. Absolutely, Meg. That's spot on. It was never in my contemplation. I didn't have awareness really of national security, you know, as a career path or the institutions that were involved in it when I was studying. So for me, I guess coming into national security and having a career in national security, it's been a bit of an evolutionary pull. I studied economics at university and I started my career in government at the Treasury and I was working on domestic policy issues. I started in, in tax policy. I worked on, then moved into to macroeconomic policy. I'd say always, you know, whilst there was a domestic focus, of course, the international matters, those things, you know, are and have always been connected. But my early career was about domestic policy. But things happened along the way that helped shape my journey to be where I am today. Yeah. And so I understand after Treasury, if I've got this right, you then went and spent three months in Japan with the IMF. Have I got that timeline right? So it's, yeah, kind of right. So I spent a, a few months in Japan while I was at Treasury. It was an opportunity that I was fortunate enough to have quite early in my career at, at Treasury. So it was a program that was run by the Ministry of Finance in Japan. They hosted uh, people from a whole host of countries to spend a few months in Tokyo. And was countries, people from countries in the Asia-Pacific region, from emerging economies in Eastern Europe, quite a diverse sort of group of countries and colleagues doing similar work. But I guess for me, that was a real spark mm -hmm. to my interest because what that opportunity gave was gave me at least, was just a real appreciation of different economies, different systems, different societies, what that means in a domestic context and how it all can fit together regionally and, and globally and just having the opportunity to talk, work, spend time with counterparts from across those countries. Not long after that, I went back to sort of, I guess, my real job in, here in Canberra. And not long after that, I went uh, again with Treasury still, but worked uh, as an advisor to Australia's Executive Director at the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C. And that sort of, in a way, built on that experience in Japan in that part of my role as an advisor in the Executive Director's office, I was there to represent not only Australia's interests, but the interests of 
the other countries in our constituency, a number of countries from the Indo-Pacific region, and again, very sort of diverse economies and societies. Mm. And when you're representing interests, you know, other than your own, it really, you learn a lot. uh, And, you know, again, come to sort of appreciate more of how the world, you know, how societies and, and how the world works. And as well as having the focus on our constituency was the opportunity to work with colleagues from right across the quite large IMF membership in pursuit of global financial stability and strong and stable economic growth. Yeah, I love that. So for me, that international connection and that international community is what I really loved about my time working overseas and experiencing different cultures. I know that you spent a little bit of time in the Solomon Islands as well, working with the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands, Ramsey for our listeners. How did these international experiences shape you? How did they change your ambition and your aspiration to do different things? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question, Meg. Partly, it, as I said, it's just that the spark, you know, the, the interest it, that came initially in Japan. It's also just those, the different opportunities gave me, I guess it's building layers of my sort of understanding and opening up, you know, my eyes to, with those experiences of the different ways that one can make a contribution and also how all of that, without me even realizing it at the time, you know, has helped lead to where I am, where I am today, because it's what we were talking about. It's not something I would ever have envisaged when I was um, studying. So if I can ask you this question, on the basis of your experience, and given that Gay and I have both had international experience, do you think that international experience, whether it's through travel or through work, helps people who want to come and join the national security domain? Is it essential? Look, I wouldn't say it's essential. I think it helps because it helps in that understanding. I think what, because, you know, I wouldn't want people to sort of think it's sort of a necessary prerequisite because, in a sense, for me, having some of those opportunities was part of actually my career path. So it Mm. came as part of that. I think what's necessary or or essential, if you like, is, is just a curiosity and an openness, you know, rather than any sort of particular I don't know, sort of list on the resume of what people have done. So, but I do think that just that exposure, understanding, you know, to different cultures and ways of being and ways that things happen is really helpful. Now, just, we just want to bring our listeners back to the present day. About eight years ago, you left what was then the Office of National Assessments to join the Productivity Commission. And you've now come back to a reshaped and renamed of national intelligence. So you mentioned this evolutionary pull that has sort of been the, the mm. undercurrent in a way of your career to date. So why did you go back to um, the Office of National Intelligence? What motivated you? What was the attraction to sort of having been outside of the intelligence community coming back? Why? Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I spent out eight years sort of away from the national intelligence community. That was in a combination of roles um, at Prime Minister and Cabinet and then the Productivity Commission and, you know, as I said before, um, domestic, there's always interconnections between domestic and international. Uh, so I always, I guess, look for those connections in the work that I'm doing. But coming back into the national intelligence community and being part, you know, very much a part of the national security community, again, for me, there was just a, a real pull in that I hope that I can make a contribution at a time where there are really some significant challenges mm. for Australia's interest. 
And it's the nature of the issues that the community is working on to, you know, to advance and protect Australia's interests and uh, towards better outcomes for us all as a nation. Mm. Th- that's sort of a powerful motivating factor in all that I've done through my career that applies in the domestic policy realm as well as the national security realm. But for me at this sort of point in time, it was a bit of that drawback. Another element of the attraction or the pull factor back for me connects to the nature of the challenges that we're facing, Mm. the importance of a collaborative effort across the national intelligence community and the national security community more broadly. And the other attracting factor or pull factor is just the people in the community, you know, the diverse talents and skills and and how all of that, you know, comes together to sort of serve the nation. Yeah, because it is a diverse range, as we mentioned before, of people that are all pulling towards our national interests and achieving that and uh, and keeping the nation secure. So it must be quite an experience working with them on a daily basis on that coordination approach and and not just that but also assisting the Director-General as well. Yeah, there's a, there's, you've sort of got many hats, haven't you? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Mm. Sort of, there are many hats to my role, many hats across the community. O&I as, a, as an organisation has um, various functions that are kind of complementary and it is about, you know, bringing the bits together to best effect for, for government and for the nation. Yep. Yeah. yeah. The mission orientation is something that I see quite strong in everyone who I meet. So that what you spoke about in terms of cultural curiosity is mm-hmm. also there, but that sense of mission and that sense of wanting to contribute is something that I see in everybody that I meet in this community. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You spoke a little bit about the changes in the external landscape. Certainly, things have changed a lot mm. over the last decade and in those eight years that you were away. I'm curious to know. What has changed internally? I mean, have, are things getting better for women in leadership in national security? Can I be so blunt to ask yeah, that? No, it's a, it's, I think they are, Meg. And I was thinking a bit about this over my career, you know, even early in my career as, as an economist, I guess through my career, it's not been unusual for me to be one of the few women in the room. That's, you know, just, just part of what I've known through, through time. But I've actually been quite struck as I've come back in and just to give a bit of a sense of as a comparator at the Productivity Commission, there are a lot of very, 
a lot of women in senior positions there. So I was sort of, what will it look like and, and feel like coming back in? But there are, there are refreshingly, a good number of women in, in senior positions across the community. So it's not that every time you walk into a room, you feel like you're the only woman there. That's not to say there's still not more for us to do within the community, whether it's gender diversity or diversity more generally. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's still more work to be done, but you ha- I've just noticed over the course of my involvement through politics and also through being in that community before, um, the national security community and foreign policy community before I went into politics, just actually seeing the changes. It's terrific. Mm. We're going to be showcasing, featuring a number of senior women over the course of this year and that we're really looking forward to that. But uh, you have really noticed the changes and it's yeah. great to see and long overdue. So just you now, you've, you've said that you've noticed the change over the course of your career from being the one of the few, if not the only woman around the table to now far more women being around the table, which is fantastic. But women are often their own worst enemies when it actually comes to expressing themselves, to being bold. And so, and they're the worst enemies when it comes to their own confidence and their own self-esteem. So what tips can you give our listeners in terms of overcoming, uh, talking down, ignoring that nasty little negative voice in our head basically saying you can't do that or you shouldn't do that or you're not qualified enough to do that or you're not experienced enough to do that? And also not just that, to embolden them to actually have the courage to speak up when they are around the table. Can I say, I feel like if anybody's going to give us some good advice, it has to be you, right? <laughs> Look how far you've made it. Oh, thanks, Meg. It's And just for listeners, as um, Gay was sort of um, outli- outlining the question, I'm sitting here nodding away at the, the points that she's making. And look, in a way, even me being here to do this podcast, it, mm. it, you know, it's an example of, of some of those sort of negative voices, you know, thinking, Oh, this is a great thing that uh, the the National Security College is doing, but oh, I, you know, I, I don't know what I've got to offer. That I've mm. got, you know, that what I've my story is an interesting story to share. And look, in my experience, my own experience, my myself, but also other women that I've talked to and that I have regular conversations with. You know, it's such a common thing, you know, f- for women to. It's the self doubt, the negative voices, as you yep. say. Part of that, I think, is that often women are setting the bar so high for themselves. They just, so I have a lot of conversations with women about being conscious of that, you know, the standard that um, you're holding yourself to. It's really, it's very important that we do hold ourselves to high standards and strive to achieve, but we've got to be careful not to set the high jump bar to pole vault height that sort of just puts barriers in our way. So I think for me personally, a lot of it is just being aware of that. Well, Nina, that's here you go again. Just get over yourself a bit, you know, mm-hmm. having those sorts of conversations with myself and also with others. I've also, I guess, been very fortunate through my career that I've had candid colleagues and mentors uh, without really realizing it at the time that that's what it was, but supporting me to have more confidence in, in myself and kind of pointing out that's just you and your views of yourself that mightn't really be aligned with either reality or how you should be thinking about things. And that's been quite helpful. So I think it's just that awareness, that self-awareness in, in part. And the speaking boldly point, Gay, I, I think that it's 
for women, for anyone, but for women in particular because of some of those barriers that, that hold us back. It's just coming back to what is the value I bring? I can bring value here. I am here for a reason. And I am speak- here for a reason. Yes. That really needs to be underscored. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Because a lot of women, I mean, what is it, the imposter syndrome? That's right. But, uh, yeah, they are there for a reason. They wouldn't be around that table That's right. if they didn't have something to offer. That's right. And I might offer it in a very different way mm. to the colleagues sitting next to mm. me, male or female, but I'm here to make a contribution. And, and it's about speaking when you've got, you know, got something to say. And I think, too, you know, over time, for any of us in our careers, we build, you know, relationships and credibility. And part of that is, you know, speaking when you've got something to say and sharing the value, uh, contributing the value that you have to offer. Mm, and yeah. having, the, yeah, it's, it's having, you're being willing, just, you know, having, have it. And sometimes, you know, it, it is just that uh, being conscious of the, the courage and the self-belief to do that. Yeah, I fully agree with you. I think for me, some of the most impactful moments in my career have been when I have found my voice and I have made a decision to speak up, even though colleagues around me were concerned about what might occur if I did speak up. But it was through those experiences that I think I was able to identify that I could express you know, perhaps things that weren't going quite right and that it would be taken seriously. So I do think you really need to find your voice. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it was a case of, in politics particularly, it early on in my term, my first term, I was reluctant to speak out because I was worried I'd cause offence, particularly when the electorate was uh, getting to know me. could have dire yeah, consequences on my job situation. Got a lot on the line. <laughs> but then, but then actually when I did find my voice and did speak out on issues and I, I just came to the realisation there will be those people who will disagree with me and they will always be there mm. and there will be those people who will be on board with me and they will always be there. So you, you just have to come to a realisation and this can be confronting for women. Mm in the fact that there will be people who won't like you. And so that you don't go out and seek enemies or try and make enemies, but you do actually need to, you just need to acknowledge that because once I found my voice and I acknowledged that, okay, there'll be some people like, you know, that won't agree with me, but I felt really empowered and emboldened by it and I wasn't frightened anymore. Yeah. The no, fear just dissipated. Yeah. And that's amazingly liberating. I, I like to hear that your fear has dissipated. Mine still sits there sometimes. <laughs> Every now and then it creeps up. Yes, but I think, you know, Gay, as you say, you, you know, it's that realisation that not everyone's going to agree with you all of the time. Mm. That wouldn't be a good thing in a, in a sense if that were the case, you know, depending on what the realm is. But, you know, I, I think often from a, and this is probably thinking more in management terms organisationally, you know, you, you can't make everyone happy all of the time. Mm. There's there's those sorts of uh, issues and trade-offs that come in. And I guess, you know, if I sort of think about analytical and assessment work, just putting a view out there is so important mm. because it is about the range of perspectives, mm. having a whole host of views laid out on the table to sort of get the best insights can be the best ideas to solve problems getting a diversity of views and ideas on on the table is so important so if you hold back you don't know you know what what you might miss and what might be possible out of that yeah and what you can offer yeah and what you can offer you spoke there a little bit about you touched on some of the qualities of people who write assessments for a living i think that's really helpful particularly for listeners who are wanting a career in in the office of national intelligence or or in assessment agencies generally mm-hmm. 
Let's talk to them for a moment. Let's talk to women who want to either forge a career or perhaps they want to change direction in their career. What advice do you have for her as she starts that journey? What qualities and characteristics should she be building in herself beyond having that confidence? Yeah. Again, another really good question. If I sort of think about some of the things that I think were important for me early in my career and that have sort of served me well, I guess, in developing through it. One is just to learn. And some of this will, will be quite simple in a way, but it's, it's learning, learning from the issues you encounter, experiences that you have, things that go well, things that don't from the people around you. And, and that can be people in all sorts of roles, those who you're working for, your team members, people that you come across in all sorts of interactions. For me, another sort of thing that I think has served me well and and that um, I guess is something that I think is just important in general is seeking to understand context, the why of things, and also the, the so what. And that just, I think, helps build understanding and judgment. And it's openness too, because, and there's various dimensions to that. But I think particularly for women early in their career, it's just being open to different sorts of opportunities, because I think we can have a a sense of what a trajectory might be or the sorts of opportunities or or things that we might do. But until you really, you know, I guess are exposed to different things or or try things, you don't really know what's possible. And it goes back to uh, our earlier sort of discussion. I could never have contemplated as a university student in in Hobart, travel and those sorts of experience hadn't been something of my experience growing up. I, I just you know, would have had no idea, you know, what to even think about. And even as my career started and and evolved, it was often because people around me were sort of encouraging me to think about uh, opening my eyes to, to sort of opportunities. Again, it wasn't that I was necessarily conscious of that, but when I look back, you know, I can think about, you know, many people who at different points of my career have been quite sort of influential in helping to shape that because they could um, open my eyes, as I say, to opportunities. I love all of that. I, the three takeaways I've got from this are have a growth mindset. And it's not just about learning from people that you like. It's also learning from people who perhaps you don't like their style and you don't want to be that way and that's okay. Or a style that wouldn't work for you. A style right? that wouldn't work for yeah, you. Because we, we don't all operate. We're not all the same people. We don't operate in the, in the same way. That's so, right. Yeah. The second takeaway I have is have a yes mindset. If an opportunity comes up, why not take it? Absolutely. And then thirdly, curiosity, right? Ask why questions and understand the context. Curiosity because it's just a big, wide, wonderful world out there and just go out and grab it with both hands. Absolutely. Suck the pips. Yep, love it. <laughs> so, look, Nina, you've been an incredible guest and you're an incredible leader and thank you so much for your service to the nation and thank you for sharing your uh, just a little bit of your journey with us today. I'm sure we could sit here for hours and, uh, and keep talking, but uh, thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me. I think this is a great initiative, uh, this, this podcast series, and I look forward to hearing from other women in the national security community as well. Thanks. Great. Thank you. And to you, our listeners, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. And don't forget to subscribe because you don't want to miss next month's podcast. We have another stellar guest. We sure do, Gay. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.